On a Sunday morning, catching up with Kevin Brunt, our EWN senior reporter, as to what the news week looked like for uh, this last week coming up, uh, you know, and, and what's going to be happening during the course of next week. Yesterday, Kevin, a very good morning to you and welcome to Cape Talk. Thank you, Zane. Uh, yesterday, Kevin, the news broke that the acting public protector, Koleka Kaleka, um, has cleared President Cyril Ramaphosa of any wrongdoing in a preliminary report. Um, after she looked into the Palapala scandal. Has the president responded to this initial finding yet? I see him on TV a lot this morning, so has there been a response? Zane, um, the acting public protector, Koleka Kaleka, has following the uproar that we've seen after that $580,000 in cash was stolen from the president's Palapala farm. She had interviews with Mr. Ramaphosa as well as his security personnel, as well as other employees, and she found that there's no basis that the president contravened the executive ethics code. Now, the president has noted during um, a visit in KZN, KwaZulu-Natal, yesterday, he noted the release of this preliminary report. I understand that it has first been leaked, and then there's been a statement being sent from the public protector's office with regard to... um, this preliminary report as well. And he said that he'll respond once the final report is out. Um, It's also most probably expected that he will mention something with regard to it um, in his uh, weekly presidential uh, newsletter that is released on a Monday. And those implicated in, in this preliminary report will now have an opportunity, Zane, to respond to these findings. Um, uh, the public protector also found that the president uh, appropriately declared his interest in his farming businesses. Now, this obviously doesn't sit very well with um, the opposition parties Zane, with regard to these preliminary findings. Mm. I was going to say, you know, the EFF will make quite a bit of noise about this and the, the DA will also be asking a number of questions, whether the money was there in the first place, where the money is, how the money, you know, there's a whole lot of questions out there. So I don't think we can take, you know, this preliminary report, um, you know, and wait for the final report as to exactly who's implicated in, in, in this, Kevin. Um, there were there were two things that also dominated outside of this report. There were two other things that dominated the scene. And we've seen violent scenes play out in parts of the country as healthcare workers affiliated to know how we demonstrated at some healthcare facilities. But there's also been an, uh, another demonstration, which is that of the Brackengate Hospital workers on a fixed-term contract. Tell us about that um, that particular demonstration outside the Western Cape Provincial Health Legislature. That's correct, Zane. Uh, these healthcare workers marched to the provincial legislature to voice their grievances. We know that the Brackengate Hospital during the COVID-19 pandemic um, served, uh, you know, a, a big purpose in in terms of taking the load off other healthcare facilities as well, and to ensure that there is enough bed space for the province to then effectively deal with the COVID-19 pandemic and in its heavy caseload, which they have done. These healthcare workers feel that they've played a very crucial part in the fight against the pandemic. Um, they say that they are on a fixed-term contract. And earlier this week, around 200 of them um, demonstrated outside the provincial legislature um, initially, the legislature to voice their grievances. We know that the Brackengate Hospital during the COVID-19 pandemic um, served, uh, you know, a, a big purpose in, in terms of taking the load off 
other healthcare facilities as well and to ensure that there is enough bed space for the province to then effectively deal with the COVID-19 pandemic and in its heavy caseload, which they have done. These healthcare workers feel that they've played a very crucial part in the fight against the pandemic. Um, They say that they are on a fixed-term contract. And earlier this week, around 200 of them um, demonstrated outside the provincial legislature um, initially, they've deal with the COVID-19 pandemic and in its heavy caseload, which they have done. These healthcare workers feel that they've played a very crucial part in the fight against the pandemic. Um, they say that they are on a fixed-term contract. And earlier this week, around 200 of them um, demonstrated outside the provincial legislature. Um, initially, that facility is catered for about 338 patients, and it's now set to be reduced to a facility that will handle only 128 um, patients as part of a transitional facility. And obviously with this reduction in, in, in the number of beds, they will need less staff also to manage that facility. But um, I earlier this week spoke to Dr. Farid Abdullah, um, and he's a specialist physician at the facility. He's an on-floor medical consultant, and he spoke to me a bit about a feeling coming from those healthcare workers, where they are at, and the fact that they now basically have until the end of March, um, you know, to still work at that facility, Zane. Just extend the contracts for the 23-24 year. That has several benefits. Number one, it allows, number one, the staff to have some direction. At least it gives them some time to be able to see some oversight, number one. Number two, it allows the facility to continue functioning within an infective space that it has, and it allows us to continue to take the massive burden of referring hospitals that refer to us. Yeah. Now, Zane, the Department of Health here in the Western Cape says that the staffing issue in a correspondence letter that I, that I asked them specific questions with regard to this issue, saying that the staffing issue is not concluded yet, so they cannot give me answers with regard to that in particular, and saying that while this facility will no longer be catering for the needs of the pandemic, it will now serve the purpose of this general transitional care facility, and that the health department will see some oversight, number one. Number two, it allows the facility to continue functioning within an infective space that it has, and it allows us to continue to take the massive burden of referring hospitals that refer to us. Now, Zane, the Department of Health here in the Western Cape says that the staffing issue in a correspondence letter that I I asked them specific questions with regard to this issue, saying that the staffing issue is not concluded yet, so they cannot give me answers with regard to that in particular, and saying that while this facility will no longer be catering for the needs of the pandemic, it will now serve the purpose of this general transitional care facility, and that the health department is sourcing um, its budget internally to maintain its operations, also saying that the department has been engaging with staff that were contracted to support the emergency response to COVID-19 since October 2022 um, on the ending of the funding and that their contracts which were linked to the spirit of the funding and emergency need. And I just asked them for interest sake also, but how much did you spend on average on that specific hospital, saying that they spent 7.6 million rand per month uh, on employees 
at the Brackengate facility. Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of upset and a lot of, um, I would say, frustration and, and fear also comes this general transitional care facility and that the health department is sourcing um, its budget internally to maintain its operations also saying that the department has been engaging with staff that were contracted to support the emergency response to COVID-19 since October 2022 um, on the ending of the funding and that their contracts which were linked to the spirit of the funding and emergency need. And I just asked them for interest sake also, but how much did you spend on average on that specific hospital, saying that they spent 7.6 million rand per month um, on employees at the Brackengate facility. Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of upset and a lot of, um, I would say, frustration and, and fear also coming from these healthcare workers in terms of where they will get alternative employment, saying that they have done very good work already at this facility as a transitional unit, and they want the department then to look into extending these contracts in. Mm. Yeah, when you enter into a fixed-term contract, that's it. When the contract ends, the work is done. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where, uh, you know, how the negotiations unfold uh, going further along with, uh, with with the staff at this particular hospital. Kevin, uh, on to international news this morning. It said that more than 300 migrants have been rescued in three separate operations uh, off the southern tip of Italy, and this is uh, just two weeks after at least 74 people died uh, when their boat hit the rocks near the coast. And uh, what is the update on that story? Yes, Dane, according to a Reuters report, growing, growing numbers of migrant arrivals have piled pressure on Italy's government, which took office last year, the Conservative government, and they wanted to reduce the flow not only uh, flow of migrants into the country, but now they're seeing a sharp increase. And according to this report, in particular from both North Africa as well as Turkey, the country's coast guard said that one of its vessels had taken about 500 migrants of one boat more than 160 kilometers out to sea and subsequently took them to one of the cities along the coastline there. And a further almost 380 migrants were removed from a separate vessel in the same vicinity and brought to land on shore and saying that these rescues were complex due to the boats being overloaded with migrants and unfavorable favorable sea conditions. And so I think, um, you know, this has been an issue that, um, I, and it, I think it opens up the discussion broadly also um, with, with people fleeing their countries where the living conditions are undesirable um, and then, uh, you know, flocking to countries where there is a bit more security and and a bit more peace, so to speak. But it also then speaks to the issue of whether or not that host country can, um, you know, carry the extra number of of people coming coming to that specific country. Then, do we actually know where the migrants are are, are from um, at the tip of Sicily, Kevin? Well, this this report says then then that they are from from North Africa. Um, and and as well as some from Turkey. Uh, And that has been, I've seen a number of reports of, uh, you know, in the past with regard to migrants um, from especially the north of Africa crossing the Mediterranean into, into countries such as Italy. 
Yeah, migrants from Turkey is understandable because we've, you know, the devastating earthquakes out in the Turkey. Definitely, in Turkey, so. it's going to be, it's going to be very difficult, and uh, it's going to take a long time for that country to actually get back onto its feet again, uh, and and to, you know, to eventually sort of um, build the infrastructure that's necessary and to to create the jobs that's necessary. Kevin Brunt chatting to us. Kevin is the senior EWN reporter. Uh, chats to us, and we catch up with things um, now nationally and things within the borders of the country and also things internationally. 0214460567 and the WhatsApp line is at 0725671567. What are the questions that you've got about the the Pala Pala saga? Uh, when did this whole thing start and why is it taking so long to unravel? Why is it that the facts are taking so long to, to, to emerge and why is this investigation into the president being dragged out and uh, why, why, why? So what are the questions that you've got in terms of the Parla Parla s- situation? Send me those questions, 021 on the WhatsApp line on 0725671567. A very good morning to you and welcome to Cape Talk. Follow Cape Talk on Twitter at Cape Talk. And for our next report, we go down under. Katie McDonald joins us this morning. Katie, a very good morning to you and welcome again on a Sunday morning to Cape Talk. Good morning to you, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> it's cycled to a time in Cape Town, and, and I think you remember from your experiences oh. of the cycle to where you just stay home and, and, and have coffee. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 Zane. You're on a bike, cycling. <laughs> well, I'm joining yeah. you and neither of us is on a bike this morning, so that's quite fine. Uh, a four-day work week among sweeping proposals made by the Senate inquiry um, sounds sounds possible and sounds plausible because everybody is calling for a four-day work week these days. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, not, um, it's not Australia alone. And there are some countries where they've trialed it. There have been some studies. And this was um, a Senate inquiry into, yeah, working conditions and wages and such things. So, yeah, one of the, well, the big recommendations was, as I said, the four-day work week. Um, and also to get people not just to work four days, but at full pay. They've also uh, looked at, or they also recommended um, restricting employers from contacting employees outside of work hours unless it's an emergency and I think Zane you know very well that um, in some sectors of, of, of industry you're on call 24-7 and that's not just you know medical and emergency workers. Uh, they've also recommended that they increase paid parental leave to a year. At the moment you get 18 weeks here so that's paid parental leave for the primary carer and that will be extended to 26 weeks by 2026. But, yeah, there are a couple of, or there's some of the recommendations. They're looking at the work-life balance, which is something that is questioned, yeah, across, I mean, across the world. Yeah. There are some places where, countries where people work extraordinary hours I'm and burnout. I'm, I'm just actually thinking mm-hmm. that if you're, if your boss says that, uh, you know, you, we're giving you a four day work week and, but, but we're paying you a full salary, there, there'll be a but in it somewhere, Katie, because they'll say, but on the fifth day, you should be available. Ah, so, but you see, now, look, I get that and I get that slightly cynical or questioning viewpoint. But, um, the idea is no. And look, there was a big study that was done between, Cambridge and Oxford University, Boston College and a few big companies and um, 
some Australian companies took part, and they actually found that in cutting the work week, they cut you know hours down by I think they said an average of six hours, and people received their full time salary. Now, how's this thing? Revenue rose eight percent during the trial, but after that, it was up thirty eight percent from the same period in the previous year. Absenteeism dropped and 60% of employees said they were less burnt out. They reported less fatigue, um, insomnia and sleep problems improved. And, yeah, some of the companies actually decided to retain it um, or retain that four-day working week. So I think it's a case of, look, it's industry dependent, but if you know you've got four days and you're not kind of stretching it out, I think you can be more productive. I get that. You know, um, the, I, anyway, I, I, I think yeah. there's a number of people who will tell you, you know, when you work with deadlines, it's impossible to have a four day work week. Yeah. Um, and and it, it just becomes, uh, you know, more uh, the pressure just becomes a lot more in those four days than what it would be over five days or seven days or so on. And you know, retail business, you can't you can't contract a, f- a four day work week in the retail business. It's just not going to work. Um, Katie, uh, Australians are struggling with the cost of living. And I. I see rental prices continue to rise. Oh, it's, it's rental prices, it's um, food prices, service prices. And look, it's been, well, the media has been flooded with reports um, with regards to the cost of living, our interest rates every time, um, yeah, there's been a sort of rate adjustment. It's, it's risen and the Reserve Bank's actually under a lot of fire for that. But, you know, they're trying to control inflation the best way possible but yeah it's it's a cost of living crisis and i know that we're not i know it's not unusual but it's huge now one of the big things is rental and availability of housing so rental prices have risen dramatically and people are just not finding places to rent and to live in and those with mortgages because interest rates have gone up by over three percent i mean that adds a huge amount to your debt um, groceries, as I said, transportation. I mean, we're experiencing what you call shrinkflation. So you'll go to the supermarket to buy your favorite 200 block of, or 200 gram block of Cadbury's chocolate and, you know, find that it's actually now 180 grams or it will be according to Cadbury's. Um, it's, it's quite something. Personal debt, the level mm. of personal debt have risen. And it's just story after story of how people are struggling. What's quite frightening is there are certain people or certain um, groups in society that are more prone and the fastest growing cohort of people struggling with poverty and homelessness in Australia is actually women over 55. Mm. And, you know, there are many living in cars and caravans and on the streets. So it's, it's concerning and it's ongoing. Yeah, it's it, it's all the, you know, we we looked at COVID and we experienced COVID, but we never plotted a way out of it, you know, and, and I think this yes. is the problem. We didn't plot 
a way out of COVID. So we, we took all the knocks. We took the, empl- the unemployment. We took the, the cut in salaries. We took everything during COVID mm-hmm. because we thought we, we were in for a better life after COVID. But we never, we never plotted a way out of it. We never sort of got to a point whereby we said, this is how we need to charter the economics of the country after or the economics of people after COVID. Uh, and this is how we need to rehabilitate people financially, emotionally, and on very, very mentally on, on a whole lot of levels, uh, uh, you know, for, yeah. from the damage of COVID. Well, it's a dog's well, life. Sorry, in, sorry. sorry uh, Katie. Yeah. It's, it's sorry. a dog's life out <laughs> in Melbourne. Uh, and, and pooches will be treated to a three-course dog station menu, which is actually MasterChef worthy. Yeah, um, yeah, the dogs seem to be fine um, <laughs> in Australia. People do spend a huge amount of money on their pets here. They really do. And, um, yeah, dog walking, dog grooming, and all those related industries. Um, interestingly enough, they're growing. But there's a particular person in Melbourne, and she's been testing what they call a high-protein raw uh food diet for her dog. Now, I will have to add, Jane, that I kind of found that a little bit interesting because when I was young, uh, my mum was feeding the dogs high protein and raw in the sense of meat. (laughs) Yeah, but this is a bit more of a gourmet take. Um, You know, she's had things on the menu such as emu, Davidson plum cheese tartlets, kangaroo and chicken heart balls served with seasonal vegetables in a golden turmeric coconut milk broth, I mean, all of these kind of things. And basically she, or what she does, this lady, Renata, she provides what she calls a three-course degustation as opposed to degustation menu um, for dogs. It's a dining event at a raw pet food store in Melbourne. So, yeah, it's, um, it's something that if you yeah, you feel you want to spoil your pooch, and yeah, change his diet a bit. I don't know what the I don't have a dog at the moment, so I'm not too sure what the in thing is to be feeding your animals. But yeah, oh, and your dog Zane, how's this? Can also enjoy um, some poor seco, which is a what they term a canine safe mocktail made from coconut water. How's that? Yeah. I'm telling you, it's it's uh, it's it's absolutely crazy when you when you look at it. And when you look at when you look at what's available in a pet shop, I very often I've got a cat, so I go you know and have a look at what's what's new for cats. And there's very little for cats, but uh, three quarters of a pet shop is always full of stuff for dogs. So uh, I wonder, you know, what what is the limit? I mean, uh, people spend thousands of rands uh, every month on their dogs, feeding them the best and making mm-hmm. sure that they absolutely. But I mean, a, a three course or a four course meal for a dog. Uh, I don't know. You know, maybe maybe MasterChef Australia will 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 put something on the menu and say, you know, oh. you need to create a meal for your dog, you know, and um, put that on the on <laughs> MasterChef Australia because they've 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 seemed to have done some strange things with MasterChef Australia. Well, Katie McDonald, uh, have yourself a wonderful week and enjoy the rest of your week. We'll chat again to you next Sunday Thank morning, you. and that's our report from Down Under. Thank you very much uh, to Katie.